This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think it stunned many signers that he became the nominee. It's easy to sign them when you're thinking it's just not likely or that the letter might change the outcome. But then I know for sure there are some colleagues of mine that regretted it later who would have liked to have worked in that administration. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by the Mackenzie Eaglin, <laughs> a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You've led the way on so many different areas and issue areas related to the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, budgets, you know, like the real hardcore stuff. And you've been on the Hill, Think Tank land. You've just established yourself as the expert on DOD in so many ways. Um, So I am just thrilled to have you here to learn from you and coming from another expert. So sweet. (laughs) I'm humbled. Thank you. Well, so to start our conversation, what got you interested in defense dorkery? It's a very technical term, (laughs) but but this is such a a unique career field. And and how did you get drawn to it? It was a little push-pull. I was interested in military service before it was cool, as in before 9-11. And I'm not really sure where that spark came from. I think maybe because I have brothers, no sisters. I, so I joke, maybe it started in the, you know, from infancy. I'm not really, <laughs> just surrounded by like <laughs> testosterone. And so in high school, I was in junior ROTC and I was drawn to like just discipline and leadership. And then in college, I went to visit West Point and I was like, why would I join the military four years early? I'm going to like a regular <laughs> school. But I stuck with ROTC, Army ROTC, um, but made sure to do lots of other fun, exciting things in college. And so my plan was to get a commission and fly helicopters. I thought that'd be pretty cool. But then at basic camp, which is between your junior and senior years, I was pulled aside for additional medical tests. Long story short, there had been an ant bite incident during physical training and the Army's board of colonels said basically like, look, here's a situation. If you have knee, back or asthma problems, we will wink and nod and not make you pay us back because we don't want you to be here if you don't want to be here. But you're not one of those um, because you have an anaphylactic reaction to ants. You're on the next flight home. So it's like, oh, oh, my God. So that was pretty sudden. I mean, the incident happened the year before, but it was a sudden change of plans before my senior year. Holy moly. So I had to scramble because I went out of nowhere. Like, ah. (laughs) It was just, well, and I had a partial scholarship at a private university. So then I had to go find new money because now there's no more money. Right. Even though it wasn't a full ride or anything. But, and then I didn't want to transfer to a public university in Georgia because it was, I had some religious credits. Those don't transfer. I didn't want to be a junior again. It's all very crazy. Very emotional. 
Oh, so, what a <laughs> profound like moment in college. And the, and the moment of the great ant bite incident at PT before, you know, in the dark at 6 a.m. on campus. It was that was a little I didn't know I had an anaphylactic reaction to ants, but we were doing a workout. I was doing sit ups in my uniform. So my hair is up. I'm in sweats and I feel something. It was kind of dark. I feel something like crawling on my neck. I know. It <laughs> makes me itchy. <laughs> so I run to the bathroom and they're screaming, hey, Glenn, hey, Glenn. And I, I'm not going to turn around and take any orders. And I get to the bathroom and I see these ants. And Georgia is known for red ants, but these were just traditional black kind. I start freaking out because I'm like, oh, that's just creepy. But yeah. it was my neck. The so next thing I know, I'm the professor of military science is speeding me to the ER. By the time we get there, I'm blind and mute because my whole face swelled shut because they bit right here, like around your neck. And I hear like one, two, three. I get onto the table and then like three days later in ICU, they're like, yeah, you you have a really bad <laughs> allergy. <laughs> this is crazy. So it was really quite the experience. <laughs> yeah, that is Well, they say the universe speaks to you in all sorts of different ways. That is definitely a powerful signal. <laughs> right. So fast forward to my crisis summer where I'm like, well, what am I going to do with my life now? How am I going to stay in school, graduate on time? And what am I going to do in my career you know, as a career? So after like a week of feeling sorry for myself, I finally I woke up and I said, you know, the universe does speak to you. I don't really take orders that well anyway. <laughs> we have this beautiful system where there's civilian control over the military. Yeah. So I'm going to go to D.C. I'm going to work at the Pentagon. And my first day at the Pentagon was 9-11. Wow. So what office did you start in in OSD? I was a presidential management fellow. I was in the badge office waiting to get into the building because we in process somewhere else at in Alexandria on that Monday, because of course 9-11 was a Tuesday and I still hadn't. So we're just sitting in the waiting to get the credentials. But then I, my first job was in policy. Which portfolio did you have? at the So that office was strategy and plans. I called it war and money. And then I moved on to acquisition and then to comptroller and the joint staff. Over the course of these positions and your experiences, did you feel like your gender created hurdles or, or not so much? To be fair, I've sort of found myself weighing that question and coming up with different answers almost every week, right? Like reflecting on my own experiences. So that's right. I exact. I can give instances of good, bad and indifferent where it has made a big difference or none at all. And in some ways to my benefit where I'm pulled up ahead of expertise or seniority yeah. or readiness because I'm a woman, you know, to do things I may not have been qualified fully yet to do. Yeah. And in other cases dismissed for the same reason, you know, no, right. not dismiss. That's too harsh a word, but well, it's it's well, it's something in that the sort of sphere of of like not quite given the opportunities or mm -hmm. yeah. So to turn to the decision that we're going to talk about today, which happened in 2016, 50 Republican foreign and national security experts signed a letter that said we're not going to support Trump, the Never Trump letter, which was a, a, a letter that sent shockwaves around Washington, if not the world. What was happening at the time? What was on the line for you? So I got an email. I, I can't remember where I was overseas. I may have been in Japan. And I typically don't even travel with my laptop. You know how these things go. You're working all night to eat dinners and that sort of thing. So I, I remember sort of seeing the subject, being like, I'll get to that. I A week later, in, back in the States, I opened it up and I'm like, you know, 
it was an invitation. The letter hadn't been drafted, but it was sort of like, a, we're working on this. Want you to know about it. Really hope you join. And I just was immediately like, nope. That's, uh, one, I just generally don't think letters are that effective. I don't mm-hmm. tend to sign group letters anyway. I, I, it's rare that they move the needle. Even the most senior people, you know, right. like former this and that titled people. But also, I just don't consider my name all that important anyway. And I also just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't sit well with me. So I kind of thought it was going to, and then I didn't hear anything. So I thought, well, maybe these, this effort is going to peter out. Like another several, maybe a month and a half later, it was, we're going live. Here's the text. Really hope you sign. Now, this time it had different, na- you know, people yeah. encouraging me to do that. And I thought about it. And, you know, having been in the, the job I'm in now and sort of think tankery, I mean, you have the things that you know, you've studied and looked at, and maybe you're an expert on over many years. But beyond that, it's really just your credibility and your reputation. There's not much else to go on. I try to be an honest broker. I'm an equal opportunity criticizer. So while I might have worked for some conservatives or Republicans, I'm always pretty annoyed at everybody <laughs> in defense. They're never doing what I think they should be doing. So, um, but I'll I'll praise and laud whenever anyone deserves it, and I will tell them when they're yeah, it's, it's a it's a nonpart like our our field is rather nonpartisan in that way we tr- a lot of us just tend to try I'd like to keep it that way and I didn't all yeah so I don't like the I don't like the personal I, I and I also am big on keep it your disagreements over policy never over people if you can and in this case it was a blend right is about a person and their policies of course so president Trump was not the candidate right this was an attempt by a bunch of people to prevent even that from happening I considered it and I thought you know I work at a 501c3, a nonprofit. We seek to educate policymakers or future policymakers on the issues that we work on. And people fund that with that goal in mind. And I don't, there's no lobbying arm. We don't have a C4 at AEI. No judgment to those who do. And my job is to educate everybody. So if Bernie Sanders had called me that cycle and said, we'd love a briefing, I'm there. There's nobody I'll rule out. And so I just said, that's my job is to say yes to brief anyone who could potentially have the job and turns out he got the job. You're in this nonpartisan institution and educating the public with a reluctance to comment on on the person. So how did you get to that place of saying that this person cannot be an effective national security leader, given that, you know, you're, you're willing to brief everybody, you're willing to do, you're willing to work with anybody to, to get the, the nation's business done. How did you get there? I had already solicited, I, you know, I'd already started briefing different campaigns, yeah. their leadership teams or defense policy teams, and in some cases, the candidates themselves. Um, but again, because this wasn't my first cycle or rodeo, I'd already been in contact with other campaign teams on the Democrat side offering more services to the Clinton campaign, for example, or just sort of being plugged in with the people who were advising her. And what's really funny is we had sent a letter of invitation to, I believe that's was our initial outreach. I don't know if it was to every single campaign, but at least, you know, this ones that seem to have momentum. So the Trump campaign, when they wrote me back, thanking me for my, uh, you know, I, I'm available. Mm-hmm. And I, this was even, this was heresy. I know for nobody else that I knew in Washington was offering to bring the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. And when they wrote back, I had sent a copy of our former president, Arthur Brooks's book, The Conservative Heart. And in the letter back, it thanked me for the conductive heart. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and I wound up briefing that team twice. I mm-hmm. uh, brought in some other colleagues from around town on uh, matters I, I didn't know about they, that they had asked about in advance. 
And of course, like I said, other campaigns. And then I worked with the leadership at the Pentagon after they had assumed those positions in that administration. Because again, like I said, it doesn't matter what I think the voters decide if he's qualified and capable. And yes, do I have disagreements on policy? Sure. But I, it doesn't matter. Right. He became the commander in chief. What did it mean to you to not sign the letter? And, and was there pushback with other colleagues or in town? Like, how did that? I'm glad I didn't. I, I'm still glad. I was glad then and I'm still glad because, like I said, it gave me the opportunity to, to work with and influence the most senior representatives at his his presidentially appointed Senate confirmed leaders, military as well. But, you know, I spent a lot of time with them while they had those incredibly difficult jobs with obviously big weighty decisions for that particular president who had deep interest in like procurement and defense policy. I believe my choice was reaffirmed repeatedly by all the work that I was able to do later. And I think, I don't know if they had never Trumpers in for meetings. I impeded by that chance to constantly work with them. Back to the, you know, sort of the process of soliciting signatures. I had another, a senior Republican policymaker, good friend of many years, and we've published together. We've worked together. We didn't, we worked on another presidential campaign together. And he called me and he said, Mackenzie, private call. Should I sign this letter? I told him the same thing. I said, you consider yourself a senior gray beard and national security and defense and a senior policymaker and advisor and thinker. And it's a possibility this person could become president. And I'm just telling you why I'm not doing it. And he said, I agree. And I'm not signing it. I didn't ask anyone to come along and follow me on my one woman uh, choices here. But that was a trusted friend and colleague. And that not that I needed anybody's validation, but, you know, he, he thought that was a logical way to think about it. The work that's done on the outside, you know, briefing the the senior teams, briefing the campaigns, that is a key role that think tanks play. And so, yeah, that was the major criticism of the Trump signers is that you're cutting off this inexperienced team's access to the knowledge that they need and that they will need to be effective stewards of the nation. I think it stunned many signers that he became the nominee. It's easy to sign them when you're thinking it's just not likely or that the letter might change the outcome. But then I know for sure there are some colleagues of mine that regretted it later who would have liked to have worked in that administration. Not necessarily because they loved the the commander in chief or the president, but they respected the secretaries of defense or the other appointees that they would have ended up working for directly. And that's right. But to your point, that precluded a whole group of smart people from uh, being asked to contribute Mm -hmm. in any way inside or outside the circle or in a job or just from the outside while they're in jobs. Because a lot of our work actually, can you go to AEI and pull up all my reports and papers and op-eds and yes, and podcasts. What you can't see are most of my work is going to meetings, right. privately having conversations with the most senior people, helping them think through challenges, much like my first job at DOD, mm-hmm. except then I was just the, you know, the fly on the wall. It, to your point, that was probably the candidate that needed it the most. Taking a step back, the think tank space, there, there's been... 
this proliferation of a bunch of new institutions. When I was on the Hill working at CRS, I called it, you know, that our leaders are awash in this tsunami of information right now. You know, th- there is that natural cycle of in and out, you know, Republicans, when, when the Republic, Republican administration's in power, then uh, the Democrats usually, you know, play roles in think tanks, stay up to speed, and then then we do the switcheroo. And it's, you know, for all of its faults and, and you know, certainly accusations of, of nepotism or something like that, it does have an effective function of, again, keeping a shadow government intact, helping make sure that a transition, when, when a transition occurs, that the nation's business can keep going. Mm-hmm. As, as as smoothly as possible. Taking that, that that raw experience and that decision to stand by your 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 conviction of, of essentially nonpartisanship, right? How do you view the evolution of the think tank space and the ideas space? And and are we do, are have we begun veering too much away from that nonpartisanship? The proliferation is yeah. different. Yeah. Then the partisan part. And both are happening, I think, at differing varying degrees. To your question, that's to me is all the more reason to remain professionals because anybody can start a blog and get the attention, even inside the Defense Department. I've seen navalists. I know you and I could talk offline on the podcast about, you know, people, you know, the proverbial guy in the basement, but who had smart things to say and could get very senior leader attention. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that the internet is sort of a leveling playing field for thinkers. Yeah. All the more reason to keep a level of professionalism about it, to keep personal feelings out of it, mm-hmm. uh, because there's not much left between us and somebody anywhere yeah. who has something to say. I mean, yes, we have more resources. We're located in the right town where we can interact. There are other things we have, but the other major value add, I think, we have as a set of institutions is the knowledge of how these issues have evolved from the inside, right? Because a lot of what the the external outside of DC analytic community from your your impassioned person, they don't usually have the benefit of what was happening, the conversations that led to X, Y, or Z policy position. And without the benefit of those conversations, some of these decisions look really kind of wacky. But there's always there's always more to the picture that that which, again, lends to why this cadre of expertise is particularly during a transition is so important to be able to tap into with the possibility, regardless of my feelings, of Mm -hmm. President Trump being the nominee and potentially a president again. Mm Those signers are, in my my understanding, is are still these blacklisted people to serve and to, to even talk to possibly. And again, that's just the country needs smart people who have all of that background that you just alluded to, who understand how and why decisions were made. If the head, if if the public's getting just the headline, they understood the trade offs and the mm-hmm. other choices, the other things pulling at the senior leader. I like to joke in DC, there's a lot of policymakers, very few decision makers, but <laughs> and so, uh, decision makers, right? That's like, that's a big weighty job and they do carry a lot and to understand how they think and work and what they had to do. I, that's right. And so the more diverse thinking, background, people, experiences, voices you have in the room or out or on your phone, mm-hmm. even if they're not working for you directly, um, I think is beneficial for the most part, most of the time. And it's, so it saddens me 
that that could happen again. Just to wrap up our conversation, do you feel your gender as a as a woman has impacted the the way you've approached your career and and this decision to not sign the letter? Um, and if so, why? And and if not, why not? At that moment, and the two times I was asked to sign the letter, it, it wasn't at all a consideration in the front of my mind or consciously. But thinking about it a little bit and reflecting on our conversation today, it's certainly an ever-present approach where I want to take great care and caution. When you speak as often as we do in these public analyst positions, I don't want to cheapen any of the words. And it can get very easy to do that when you're talking all the time. A general sort of philosophy or personal standard is to still consider my words carefully and with great caution, have great respect for thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. and to also be professional at all times. And this letter to me, it's not that it was unprofessional, but for me. Do you feel that that generally speaking, our 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 male colleagues are held to a different standard than, than we are? There are instances where I can identify that as certainly being true. I don't think it's everywhere all the time. Yes. And and that's not to denigrate. There's amazing right. male colleagues in this totally. field, like all of the things, all right? The things. Uh, and powerful allies, too. And yes. Gets and excellent mentors. And excellent I've mentors. Had lots of incredible male mentors. But I don't even want to find out. So for me, I'm just going to try to rise above it whatever it is, the fray, because in policy, you inevitably touch politics. As much as I would love to consider myself above the fray, we're not because politicians often make these policies that we're talking and thinking about and trying to educate on. It's just my personal standard to always take great care, to keep that reputation and credibility, which by extension, I hope makes me better at my job. Kenzie, well, you are incredible at your job. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time. This Smart Women Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis.